Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Looking East, Indian Influence on Greek Thought. If you make it a habit to give public lectures on ancient philosophy, you are almost guaranteed to be asked at some point whether Greek thought was influenced by ancient Indian culture. In fact, this might be the single most common question posed by general audiences who are confronted with ideas from ancient Greece or ancient India, which is perfectly understandable. What could be more intriguing than the possibility that Plato, Aristotle, or Plotinus might have been influenced by ideas found in the Upanishads, in early Buddhism, or in Vedanta? Taking the possibility seriously threatens to undermine the very contrast between Eastern and Western philosophy, which is fine by us, since it's a contrast that deserves to be undermined for other reasons anyway. Something we find more problematic is the usually unspoken suggestion that, if Indian thought really did influence Greek thought, that would secure India a rightful place in the history of philosophy. If this series of podcasts has been even halfway successful, you should by now be convinced that Indian thought amply deserves such a place in its own right. A similar problem arises with philosophy in the Islamic world. Thinkers like Avicenna and Averroes have often attracted attention primarily because they influenced Latin Christendom rather than being treated as worthy objects of study in their own right. Meanwhile, the vast number of Muslim philosophers who lived after the 12th century have been omitted from most histories of philosophy because they came too late for the Arabic-Latin translation movement and were thus unknown in Europe. So, as we delve into the question of influence, let's bear in mind that the real importance of Indian philosophy is its intrinsic fascination, not the impact it may or may not have had on another culture. We might add that even if we were going to justify an interest in Indian philosophy on the basis of its influence on other cultures, we'd do better to stress its massive importance for the history of philosophy in China and other parts of Asia, which on any reckoning dwarfs the impact it may have had on ancient European thought. Now that we've gotten that off our chests, let's turn to the obvious first question. Was there any contact and cultural exchange between the ancient Greek and ancient Indian cultures at all? to which the answer can only be a resounding yes. Trade routes between Europe and India were open well before the emergence of pre-Socratic philosophy, and already in classical antiquity, there are scattered literary testimonies to that trade. The Hippocratic corpus refers to pepper, Sophocles to Indian gold, Xenophon to Indian hunting dogs. During this period, the Persian Empire would have offered a meeting place for Greek and Indian culture. Apparently, the army Xerxes led against the Greeks included Indian soldiers, and Greek and Indian scholars would also have met at the Persian court. Nonetheless, during classical antiquity, the time of the pre-Socratics, Plato, and Aristotle, knowledge of India would have been rather limited and indirect. The most valuable information was contained in ethnographic writings about India that are now unfortunately lost, notably by the fabulously named Skylax, who in the 6th century BC participated in a military expedition to India led by the Persian king Darius. Herodotus also mentions that expedition and draws information about India from another ethnographer named Hecateus. But in our story, the key moment comes right around the time of Aristotle with the conquest of Alexander the Great. 
When he reached Bactria and India in about 330 BC, he brought Greek culture with him, founding Hellenistic cities and creating the conditions for a more profound engagement with Indian society. That engagement is most palpable in the work of Megasthenes, an ambassador to the Mauryan court from Seleucus, the Hellenistic king who succeeded Alexander in the eastern lands that had been conquered. Megasthenes dealt with the mighty Indian emperor Chandragupta and may have visited the great city of Pataliputra. He was thus able to describe Indian culture as a direct witness, even if he did so using the tropes of Greek ethnography and made some perplexingly basic errors, for instance denying the existence of slavery in ancient India. Sadly, Megasthenes' work is also lost, except in the form of quotations found in later authors, notably the historian Strabo. Thanks to him, we know that Megasthenes was aware of the Shramana ascetic movements in India. He even contrasted two kinds of renouncers, those who stayed in the city to work as healers, and those who withdrew to the forest. All of this makes it eminently plausible to suppose that Indian philosophical ideas could have reached Greek intellectuals, and anyone who reads around a bit in both traditions will come upon plenty of striking parallels. Someone who has done more than just a bit of reading around is Thomas McEvely, whose massive book, The Shape of Ancient Greek Thought, detects echoes of Indian ideas in pretty much every ancient Greek philosopher, from the pre-Socratics down to the late ancient Neoplatonists. To give you just a sampling, he points out that there are matching lists of fundamental elements, air, earth, fire, and water, in both cultures. He finds both Heraclitus and the Vishnu Purana saying that divine forces are at play like a child. He notes that the Rig Veda makes ocean the source of all things, as Thales made water his primary principle, while the Upanishads identify air as primary, in agreement with Anaximenes. As many others have done, he points out that the Pythagorean doctrines of vegetarianism and reincarnation sound rather Indian, and that the monist trend in Brahminical thought that culminates in Advaita Vedanta has an echo in Parmenides. The Chandogya Upanishad, too, sounds rather like Parmenides, when it denies that anything can come to be from nothing. As for later ancient philosophy, McEvely remarks that it is hard to identify any significant difference between either the methods or the stated purposes of Pyrrhonist and Madhyamaka dialectic, thus suggesting a strong parallel between ancient skepticism and Buddhism. He also compares the philosophically motivated rituals of Tantra to theurgy in Neoplatonists like Iamblichus. McEvely is largely content to make us aware of such echoes without wedding himself to any one explanation for them. He admits that, alongside more or less direct influence from India, there are two other possibilities. One is, of course, coincidence. We have here two massive bodies of philosophical writing. Imagine that we went through the many thousands of pages of ancient Pali and Sanskrit philosophy and found no passages at all that reminded us of anything in the equally voluminous remains of Greek philosophy. That would be truly extraordinary, especially since philosophical reflection is presumably bound to give rise to certain fundamental ideas, like atomism in physics, skepticism in epistemology, or monism in metaphysics. So a skeptic could see McEvely's impressive resume of resonances as nothing more than a collection of similar ideas that were reached independently. A further possibility, which McEvely seems to find attractive, is that there are deeper roots to both Indian and Greek philosophy which are now obscure to us. 
There are shared mythic tendencies also found in Near Eastern and Egyptian religion and philosophy, which suggests cultural connections from before historical records began. That might explain such parallels as the urge to trace all things back to one physical element, like water or air. Of course, this is unsatisfyingly vague and not really sufficient to account for more exact parallels. Resonance is so strong that one almost can't help suspecting a direct textual appropriation. It has to be said that, in the many hundreds of pages of his book, McEvely does not offer many parallels of that sort. One of them, which he considers to be something close to genuine proof of real cultural exchange, is a testimony of Heraclitus, in which he is said to have explained night and day in light of two exhalations, one bright and one dark. This same idea is found in the Chandogya Upanishad and the Great Forest Upanishad. Even in cases that are not quite so striking and specific, McEvely finds it hard to believe that we just have two traditions independently reaching the same conclusions. Realizing that some readers may think the list of basic elements found in both Greece and India is somehow obvious, he points out that in China they had a different list, namely water, fire, wood, metal, and earth. We might add that in the 1970s disco culture, they got the list down to three, earth, wind, and fire. To make up our mind whether there really was significant historical influence, it may help to think a bit harder about how the influence could have occurred. Despite the context of cultural exchange we sketched for you just now, there were formidable obstacles in the way of a serious engagement between Greek and Indian intellectuals. Most obviously, the two civilizations were separated by thousands of miles. It is not so obvious that complex philosophical ideas could travel all that way along with pepper and other luxury goods. To this, we can add the problem of linguistic barriers. If we consider cases of profound cultural exchange in the history of philosophy, we see that they have typically involved a deliberate effort to translate writing from one language into another, as when rich Muslims commissioned Arabic versions of Greek science in the 8th and 9th centuries AD, or when the Latin Christians translated from Arabic and Greek in the 12th century. Nothing like that happened here. There was no Sanskrit-Greek translation movement, indeed not a single case of a philosophical work from India being translated into Greek or Latin in antiquity. Furthermore, we should bear in mind that the ancient Indian elite excluded almost all other Indians from their intellectual activities, never mind barbaric foreigners who were frequently regarded with deep distrust. It may be more plausible to imagine that the less exclusivist Shramana philosophers, like Buddhists, Jains, and Ajivakas, were open to sharing their ideas with outsiders. If ideas did manage to fight their way past all these obstacles, it's easy to imagine that they would have been greatly oversimplified and perhaps distorted in the process of transmission. If skeptical or just cautious historians are going to be persuaded that there was profound and direct engagement between any Greek philosopher and Indian thought, they will probably want to hear of an intrepid traveler, which in practice means a Greek who finds his way to India, since it seems that no Indian thinker went to Europe. They will need to be shown not just evocative parallels, but historical evidence that the thinker in question was genuinely inspired by Indian ideas, and given the points just made about exclusivity, they should perhaps expect that the relevant ideas on the Indian side would not be Brahminical, but would more likely stem from a Shramana group. Step forward, Pyro of Ellis. He was the putative founder of Hellenistic skepticism, and the namesake of the radical Pyronian form of skepticism adopted by the 2nd century AD author Sextus Empiricus. 
And, excitingly, we are told in a detailed account of Pyro's life from antiquity, written by Diogenes Laertius, that he accompanied Alexander's military expedition to India. There he met with naked sophists, presumably meaning ascetic philosophers. Such figures are said elsewhere to have been encountered by Alexander's entourage near Taxila. Diogenes tells us that it was a direct result of his meeting with the Indian sages that Pyro adopted his signature policy of suspending judgments because our beliefs are only a matter of custom, whereas in themselves things are no more one thing than another. On the strength of this evidence, scholars like Everard Flintoff and more recently Christopher Beckwith have argued that Pyro's introduction of skepticism to Greek philosophy was a more or less direct borrowing from early Indian skepticism. Whereas Flintoff is happy to leave open the question of which ascetic, skeptically inclined movement Pyro may have encountered, Beckwith has written an entire book arguing that the stories about Pyro constitute a crucial piece of evidence for the nature of early Buddhism. This hypothesis is particularly attractive because Pyro is renowned for having achieved what the Greeks called ataraxia, that is, freedom from disturbance. He was impervious to physical and mental pain, just as the liberated Buddhist is free from all suffering. Moreover, Pyro reached the state of ataraxia precisely by adopting the skeptical attitude of suspending judgment about all things. He and his followers used an array of arguments and techniques to puncture the pretensions of so-called dogmatists who had positive philosophical doctrines. Among them was an argument form that looks strikingly like the so-called tetralemma, the fourfold menu of options used so effectively by Nagarjuna. The argument form is found in early reports about the Buddha himself, and then also in a testimony about Pyro, and in numerous passages in the works of Sextus. That's pretty striking, even if arguments of the same form are found already in Plato and Aristotle. There is one small problem here, though. Buddhists are very far from being Pyronian skeptics. As we know, the Buddha certainly dealt with some philosophical questions by refusing to answer them, but this was typically because the questions made presuppositions or used concepts that he considered misleading, for example by assuming the existence of the self. Indeed, that most signature commitment of Buddhism, the doctrine of no self, would be regarded as a negative dogmatic belief by any self-respecting or no self-respecting Pyronian skeptic, who would suspend judgment about whether or not there is a self. Likewise, each of the famous Four Noble Truths is a straightforward assertion, and a Pyronian skeptic would demur from endorsing any of them. Beckwith rather cheats by trying to persuade us that the Buddha adopted a universally skeptical posture like that of Pyro. For instance, he suggests that when Pyro said that all things are adiaphora, meaning undifferentiated or not distinct, he meant the same thing expressed by the Buddha with the word anatman, which indicates a lack of self or independent reality. But in fact, the two notions are very different. Pyro was suggesting that we can never judge that anything is more one thing than another, for instance that an action is more good than bad, whereas the Buddha was rejecting a specific metaphysical idea. So far from suspending judgment about the notion of Atman, he was forthrightly rejecting it. Whatever skeptical consequences followed from that, they were not supposed to undermine key positive doctrines of Buddhism, notably the Four Noble Truths. If we jump ahead to consider the contemporary followers of Pyro and the Buddha, namely Sextus and Nagarjuna, both of whom lived in the 2nd century AD, we can reach a similar conclusion. 
Nagarjuna's dialectical subtlety and skill in undermining the arguments of rivals is certainly comparable to that of Sextus. But Sextus would unhesitatingly classify Nagarjuna as a negative dogmatist, not a true skeptic, because Nagarjuna was committed to the principle that all things are empty and dependently arising. As we saw, it is a matter of great dispute what he meant by that, but whatever he meant, we can be sure that Sextus would want to suspend judgment about whether all things are empty. There are, he would no doubt say, good arguments on both sides of the debate between the upholders of Svavava and the adherents of emptiness. The upshot of all this is not, of course, that we can rule out influence from Buddhism on Pyro. A likelier conclusion is one that will satisfy neither the skeptic nor the enthusiast concerning Indian influence on Greek thought. Pyro may have encountered and been inspired by Indian philosophers while on campaign with Alexander's army, but unsurprisingly, given the cultural and linguistic barriers involved, he failed to understand what those philosophers were saying, or at best, borrowed from them very selectively. Let's now move ahead several centuries to another, even more influential Greek thinker who has often been associated with Indian thought, Plotinus, the 3rd century AD founder of Neoplatonism. As with Pyro, we have good evidence for his interest in Indian thought and of travel to the East. Plotinus's student, editor, and biographer Porphyry tells us that in 242 AD, Plotinus joined the military expedition of the emperor Gordian III precisely in hopes of learning something about the philosophy of the Persians and Indians. Unfortunately, this expedition was an abortive one, so it can't really be used as evidence that Plotinus had the sort of encounter he was apparently hoping for. As for internal textual evidence from Plotinus's own writings, he never mentions India or its intellectual traditions but Porphyry does. His work on vegetarianism has a reasonably well-informed section on Indian cultural practices, and Augustine tells us that in another, now lost work, Porphyry set out to compare Neoplatonic philosophy with what he called the practices and teachings of the Indians. Apparently, then, Plotinus had both the motive and the means for accessing Indian ideas, even if in only a rather indirect way. Are there signs of its influence in his thought? Positive answers to this question have drawn comparisons between his Neoplatonism and Vedanta, especially of the Advaita variety. This is problematic, chronologically speaking, given that Shankara lived about a half millennium later than Plotinus did, but we might suppose that Plotinus was picking up on some of the same Indian ideas that would later inspire the emergence of Advaita Vedanta, notably the concept of Brahman in the Upanishads. In apparent agreement with that strand of the Vedic tradition, Plotinus identifies the paradigmatic source of being as a single universal mind and encourages us to realize our unity with that source. He makes the physical universe nothing but an image or outward manifestation of intellect, which is the seat of knowledge and, we might venture to say, consciousness or selfhood. In addition, Plotinus carries forward some of the themes from earlier Greek thought that may remind us of India, such as a belief in reincarnation. The main argument against Indian inspiration is that Plotinus could, and to be honest quite evidently did, develop all of these ideas through an engagement with earlier Platonism. His universal mind is also the realm of Platonic forms, and is not really a new idea so much as a modification of theories that had been put forward in so-called Middle Platonism, the tradition of reflection on Plato's dialogues that unfolded in the generations prior to Plotinus. Indeed, some of Plotinus's contemporaries accused him of simply stealing his entire system from a Middle Platonist named Numenius, 
surely an exaggeration, but one with a grain of truth. There's a methodological conundrum here. Should we only accept claims of intercultural influence when developments in a given tradition cannot be explained as a development within that tradition? That may seem unduly demanding. In the present instance, there is nothing to prevent us from supposing that Plotinus was inspired both by his own Platonist predecessors and by Indian ideas, especially if he saw them as reaching agreement. The comparison between Plotinus and Vedanta, or the Upanishadic idea of Brahman, is complicated, though, by the fact that Plotinus posits a higher principle above the universal mind, which is explicitly not a mind, but a pure unity that does not think about anything, even itself. Besides which, if we wanted to locate a self or a seat of consciousness in Plotinus, we might more plausibly associate it with the individual soul than the universal mind. As with Pyro, it would seem that initially striking parallels start to look less exact when we consider the details of the philosophical views in question. Then again, that is perhaps just what we should expect. In a situation where access to Indian thought was bound to be very imperfect, why expect perfect parallels? In this spirit, even scholars who are open to the relevance of Indian philosophy for Plotinus have reached somewhat half-hearted conclusions. Thus, McEvely writes that, though it was virtually certain that Plotinus had some contact with Indian ideas, that contact probably didn't amount to much, and that the similarities may be due to the longer-standing presence of Indian themes in Greek thought. Another recent assessment remarks more generally that, if we gather together all Greco-Roman views on Indian philosophers, we may think that more information, if not sources, was available to them, though probably in a very general and distorted way. Such moderate conclusions are salutary, given that, by the standards of the history of philosophy, this question of Indian influence on Greek thought often evokes such strong feelings. Many would like to believe that such influence was not just real, but deeply significant. Others, not least scholars of Greek philosophy who would rather not be required to go learn all about Indian philosophy, are equally determined to exclude the possibility entirely. In fact, we should almost certainly admit that ideas did filter into the ancient European world from ancient Indian culture. But in stark contrast to the tremendous and determinative impact of Greek ideas on the Islamic world, and then of works from the Islamic world on Latin Christendom, the Indian contribution to ancient Greek thought was intermittent and rather incidental. Rarely, if ever, did it take the form of a detailed and well-informed engagement with Indian philosophy on the part of Greek or Roman intellectuals. For that sort of engagement, we will need to wait for later moments of cultural exchange, moments that will in fact be the topic of our next episode, here on The History of Philosophy in India. <laughs>